Let's take our Bibles and look together in Proverbs chapter 23. Read from verse 1 down to verse 8. And I've entitled this study, Deceitful Food. So the question is, is this just about physical food that we're reading here? Or is there a message for us with regard to not compromising the true bread of life, that spiritual food, which is our sustenance. Proverbs chapter 23, beginning with verse 1. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee, and put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties. And here's where the title of this study derives. For they are deceitful meat. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. But thou set thine eyes upon that which is not. Nor riches. For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle. Or heaven. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. The morsel which thou hast eaten shall thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. Gracious Father, as we take up your word once again, how we need your spirit of discernment, not to just read these scriptures with a natural eye, but that discerning that even here in the text is told us, consider diligently what is before us in all things, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that it be to your honor and glory alone. I pray above all that you enable us to see the glory of Christ, the true bread of life, that is the meat, his shed blood, which is the drink of those that you've purposed to save and have saved through his work of righteousness that he came and earned and established and you have imputed once for all for their spiritual account, thereby declaring them righteous, justifying them, sanctifying and holy because of Christ. So we bow before you and pray for receptive hearts and above all ears to hear. And we give you praise, honor, and glory in Christ's precious name. Amen. I know there are many that read this portion from the standpoint of physical food and being careful what you eat and watching your appetite. And there may be some practical applications with regard to what we eat. I know I've been in the doctor several times, and as I get older, he's kind of subtly warned me that somehow I need to change my diet if I'm expecting to be able to continue with a somewhat healthier physical life. And so you heed those warnings, and you watch your... South, you watch your diet. 
It's amazing to me that the body, as the Lord directs it, tends to dictate who we are and what we are, because you can do many things to try to curb it, but it is what it is. And so some would approach this from that angle. You'll notice that there are a lot of books out there on nutrition and uh, devotionals even. There's even a weight loss Bible, they call it, out there, where you can read the scriptures daily while you're drinking your tea or eating the leaves and herbs that they say are going to help you live forever. They've actually done a study over 20 years and found out it does not in any way affect longevity of life, which I find interesting. And we can expect that because the Lord has already determined our days and his will be done. But I believe that if that's all you get out of this, you'll have missed the whole point completely. Because here, when it's talking about verse 1, when thou sittest down to eat with a ruler, these were ones that were considered to be blessed of God. In fact, they were even called gods. Little G-O-D-S, but gods. And that's how they ruled and reigned. And they would, by their festivities and by their pomp and circumstance, they would make a show of their power, a show of their riches. And there were some, when they were invited to sit down at the table with these, they thought that was the greatest thing that could ever happen to them. It'd be much like if you got an invitation from the president to attend a state dinner in recognition of somebody, and they put you right front and center there. And you would think, wow, this is really something that I received an invitation to sit at table with the president. But this is what the scripture is saying. Consider diligently what is before thee. In other words, don't get caught up with men's honors and men's praise or men's riches, even thinking that somehow you're better for it by being in their presence. You see, this has to do with where our eyes are. And I'll tell you also, as you read on down through here, it has to do with discontentment over where we are. Because the Lord has placed each of us in this life, in the state, condition where we are. And to think that we're better simply because we have our eyes set on what God has given another and desire that versus thanking him even for the morsel of bread he gives us. That that in itself is covetousness. And that's really... Hear what Solomon is, by the Spirit of God, directing our thoughts in. Consider diligently what is before thee. When it says consider diligently, this has to do with heart matters. Am I really affected by being in the presence of those who are considered by the world to be famous and that by my being there is somehow I'm better for it? That's what he says. In verse 2, put a knife to thy throat. Literally, it would be best to just slit your throat. Then, 
in any way, as it says here, be, be a man given to appetite. What he's talking about there is something of this earth that I consider to be better than what I have already in Christ. And certainly in the New Testament, you can see our Lord taught his disciples of what are true riches. It's not the things of this world. Christ himself said, do not set your affection on things below where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal. Don't in any way put your confidence in anything in this flesh because that's not true riches. And even as it says here in verse 5, wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? He's talking about all the riches of this world and anything that you can consider to be wealth and contributing your well-being. Why would you set your eyes on that which is not? In other words, it's but a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. That's not our life. And we're not to judge God's blessing based upon having a sumptuous table or having riches and wealth compared to others. That's not life. It says there in verse 5, For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Which means that you can pursue it if you'd like, but as you get close to it, it's like that proverbial gold pot at the end of the rainbow. You run toward it, you try to find the end of it, and there's that belief that somehow you're going to find a little gold pot there with some leprechauns running around it. doesn't exist. Anything upon which we set our affection on this earth for life or for well-being is but of vanishing nothing. That's what it says there in verse 5. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? It doesn't exist. There's no longevity in anything that this world has to offer. But on the contrary, Paul says there to the Colossians, set your affection not affections, it's one word, singular. Set your affection on things above. Well, what's above? Well, Christ is above. He's been from eternity to eternity. And when he came to this earth, and he earned and established that righteousness which was necessary to save sinners such as we are, and ascended back on high after his resurrection, he's seated in the heavens. And as the high priest of that people that he came to redeem and justify and sanctify and has, their names are written on that breastplate. So that means even though physically we're here, yet we're seated with him in the heavens. Our name being there. And that's where our affection is. Not in the things of this life. We're so fickle. We get up today, it's a beautiful day. Take deep breath, think, man, I can live forever like this. Really? It's still a cursed world. We're still living a fallen flesh. And thank God that's not all there is. Certainly it's nothing more than temporal. Today 
We're in good health. Tomorrow we walk in the doctor's office and he said, well, you've got advanced cancer and you've got X number of days to live. That word alone causes many to shudder. I've always prayed that no matter what, if I walk in, the doctor tells me that, he hadn't told me anything I don't already know because the death sentence is already in this body. It just hasn't been manifest yet. However, God's pleased. Our days are numbered. They're already written in his book. So therefore, we don't put confidence in this flesh in thinking that I'm going to be healthy forever. Really? Age has a way of taking care of that, doesn't it? The older we get, the more feeble these bodies become. Those are all warnings of the Lord, not to put confidence in anything. Don't put confidence in our bank account. Today, we seem to have a sum of money, and we think, I could retire on this, and tomorrow, the Lord takes it all away. Then we're cast entirely on his mercy, which is where we are anyway. There's no greater blessing than to be completely cast upon him. And the Lord warns us, again, even there, not to set our desires on things of this world, because at best, they're but a fleeting moment fleeting breath. And so the point here is be not desirous in verse 3 of his dainties. There again, it has to do with covetousness. While you're sitting there, you're thinking, oh, I wish I could have this every day. So there again, that's discontentment. That's the pride of this heart to think that we deserve better than what we had. When I hear people complaining about their income and what they have. The thought that the Lord gives me each time is, you mean you can't live on what the Lord gives you? Because everything we have comes from Him. So stop and think about that. That's why the Lord said, give us this day our daily bread. Take no thought for tomorrow, what tomorrow may bring. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We're trying to fight against that in our flesh and think that somehow I gotta build a safety net. I gotta because if I don't, then who's gonna take care of me? What's gonna happen? The Lord is our portion. The Lord is our strength. And so therein we're cautioned here not to be affected in this world by what others have or don't have. David wrote of that in the Psalms, where he said that when he saw the success of the wicked, he coveted that success and how they were being blessed temporally by the Lord. And, but he says, until he saw their end. It's better to have a dry morsel of bread and contentment there, therewith and have Christ and all the riches of glory in Christ, that it is to have all that God has given to natural people. But you stop and think, if they're not the Lord's, that's the only blessing they're ever going to know, temporal blessing. That's the only comfort they're going to know is what's in this life. But what awaits them on the other side of eternity is nothing but death and condemnation. Think of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, where the dogs came and licked his wounds as he sat at the gate of the rich man, and everybody looked on Lazarus as being condemned and looked on the rich man as being, wow, he's blessed. 
But when the rich man died and Lazarus died, they were found in that place called Sheol up until Christ came and paid the sin debt of his people. They all went to this place called Sheol, the place of the dead. But there wasn't a mingling of those who were the Lord's because there was Abraham and all the blessings that God promised in Abraham and his seed. That's why it's called Abraham's bosom. Those were ones that God had set apart in his electing grace and for whom Christ would come and pay their sin debt, Abraham included. People say, well, when Abraham died, where did he go? He went to that place called Sheol, just like Job, just like any of them, awaiting their redemption. It wasn't finished until Christ finished the work. But there was a great gulf dividing because over here with Abraham was this Lazarus that the world looked on with pity, had nothing, spent his life begging, dogs licking his sores, and men said, what a poor wretch. And yet on the other side over here is this rich man who had everything in this life, but on that side of eternity, there he was in suffering, even begging someone to take a drop of water to put it on his tongue, and even begging that somehow someone be sent back to his brothers to warn them. And Abraham said, if they don't believe the scriptures, that's really what he said. This is all written in the scriptures. They'll never believe though one would come back from the dead. Who was he speaking of? He's speaking of Christ. There are many that saw Christ come, live, die, and rise again, and set on high. But when it was all said and done, they washed their hands and continued on in their path. That's what happens when God leaves reprobate sinners to themselves. And so don't be desirous. In fact, that rich man is still in that place called death, Sheol, awaiting that day when that body will be resurrected along with those that God has justified in Christ. There's one resurrection, but there's not going to be a long trial like people think, well, this will be my opportunity now to defend myself before a holy God. The scriptures say simply that when those books and works are open, men will be judged by them. It doesn't say saved, judged. And what will be the judgment for everybody in that book, or those books of works, as mentioned there in Revelation chapter 20? It'll be, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew. That's it. Cast out forever from the presence of God. But oh, the blessing of those that Christ has redeemed to enjoy his presence forever. So this is why we're warned here, very specifically in verse 3, be not desirous of his dainties. Don't even look at that table and think, I'm going to make this my daily food. It says there, for they are deceitful meat. Anything deceitful is something that gives a false sense of hope or a false sense of prosperity, false sense of security. And here's where I would have you consider this even from a spiritual standpoint, that there are these dainties 
that are being served up by false religion. There again, if we had the time, we'd go over there to Revelation chapter 18 and read about the great whore, which is representative of false religion with all that that whore has to offer, fixed up like a whore. That's what false religion is. It makes people feel better about themselves. And the deceitful meat that is served up are things that are appealing to the flesh. There's a great whorehouse here in Shreveport that actually comes out once a year in the paper with all of the different programs that they offer the community. And one of them is a CPR class. You can actually come and get certified by coming to their whorehouse because it's not Christ that's being preached and learn how to give CPR. People flock to that kind of thing. They're looking for these dainties. They're looking for some sort of benefit that they can get. Their interest isn't on Christ. And they boast of their numbers, of how many members they have. They boast of their buildings. They boast of their budgets. And here we sit in a small, what I call sheepfold. <laughs> Few in number by comparison. But here's the thing. Don't be desirous of the dainties. Because there is no hope at all in what false religion has to offer. And then again, when you consider, they are a deceitful meat. It's giving people a false sense of assurance. Even in Matthew chapter 7, our Lord said of those religious people of his day, because they were just like these rulers. They walked around in pomp and circumstance. They were the wealthy of the day. And religion had made them so. They earned their wealth on the backs of the poor of the day. Putting down restrictions and requirements and rules and regulations of things they had to do. And most of it had to do with money. Give for this and you'll get this. Even when they brought their sheep to the temple for offerings. Remember Christ chased out twice in his lifetime. The money changers. People came from different areas, but they needed that special coin that was used for the temple. And so if you came with your regular coin that had Caesar's image on it, they made you change it for their temple money. And the exchange rate was always enormous against those that brought it. When they brought their sheep, these would tell them, well, that sheep has a blemish. They'd find any reason at all to say that that sheep couldn't be offered. And they would say, but you can buy this one over here. You could, the, the, the temple had the sheep pens where these over here were approved, but yours isn't. And so they'd, make, they'd go back and get this one for a price. And these are poor folk. And when they would take that sheep from you, they'd go around back and put it right back in there with the rest of them. So it was a rotating money changing that was going on. And they enriched themselves. That's why the Lord warned when you go to do your all before men, don't sound the trumpet as do these Pharisees. To be seen and heard of men. There's so much in this 
that no aspect of false religion and all that's going on founded upon men and whatever dainties that they have to offer should ever be considered in our minds as being something that we should enjoy or seek or desire to fellowship with. I've had some leave here for that one reason because it's too small and doesn't seem to be growing. So I'm going to go over here where there's activities and boy, do they have it going on. And they go and sit as one would here at the king's table, desirous of the dainties and laboring. You can see in verse four, labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Don't labor for any sort of benefit that men have to offer. Cease from thine own wisdom. If God were to leave us to our own wisdom, that's where we'd end up. That's where we'd be. But when God does a work of grace, there's a complete separation. There's some that I've often said it's like a blind person sitting in a room. They can sit there with the light on or off. It doesn't matter. There's some that we have even here that come and they sit and listen because they like to hear the message every once in a while, but given the opportunity, they go right back over someplace else. And you'll find them sitting in there right along with everybody else. It doesn't matter. It's because of family acquaintances or family associations or whatever. Ever since the Lord has been pleased to teach my own heart, he has brought about separation. I have no desire by God's grace ever go join myself at their table and look at their dainties and think that somehow there's some benefit at all. I had some asking that, don't you get hankering for fellowship? Yes, but for true fellowship. I'm not going to go out there and prostitute myself in some place of worship just because that's where everybody's going or the latest thing's going on. The Lord has completely removed that desire and I thank him for it. And I tell you, shoot me if you ever see me going that way. Because that's putting the knife to the throat. That is renouncing that appetite for anything other than what God is purposing in Christ. Do you realize that's why the children of Israel perished in the desert? The Lord gave them the manna. I've mentioned that to you before. The word manna is a Hebrew word that means which means what is it? When he provided it, the coriander, see people are still trying to figure it out. Even that, they're trying to figure out, well, if I could get a hold of some manna today, they're thinking in terms of just physical, I'll be, I'll be healthier. I guess there's coriander seed that you can go out there and buy, but this was mystery food. This was God's bread. Christ compared himself to that bread which has come down from heaven, saying he is the bread of life. But they weren't content with that. After they ate it for a while, they wanted something more. There's that appetite. Something more. They asked for the leeks and onions of Egypt. Their desire was back there in Egypt, even though they had spent over 450 years in bondage under a severe taskmaster. And yet, at a certain point, they thought we'd be better off in Egypt than we would here eating this bread. They loathed, the scriptures say, the bread, the manna. And so God gave them what they desired, but the scriptures say, sent leanness to their souls. 
Even the quails that God caused to fly right in low enough to where they could swat them down and grab that and run back to the tent and say, Honey, I brought supper. We can have roast quail tonight. And the scriptures say, While it was yet in their mouth, God killed them. See, all of this pertains to where our heart is. Here, even in this scripture in verse 7, it says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Out of the heart the mouth speaks. You can put on a show for a while and pretend that you're delighted to sit under this glorious message of Christ and Christ alone, him crucified, salvation and none other. I've had many come through in the 23, now 24 years that I've been preaching here in Shreveport. If I were to list the names, hundreds have come and gone, come and gone, come and gone. What happens? They sit for a while and they seem to delight in this message of Christ, the true bread, for a time. But then, even as the scriptures say, the heart, we have the same heart always. Sometimes that seed falls by the wayside. The birds come and take it up. Sometimes it falls among the thorns of this heart. And the thorns raise up and choke it out. Such is our heart. Such would be our case. That at some point or other, we decide and we determine within this heart, left to ourselves, that there's something better out there. And so this heart goes back to that works religion. It goes back to the dainties of the, the king's table. And it desires those dainties rather than to be satisfied with Christ alone, the bread of life alone. And soon they find there's no satisfaction. I fear greatly for those that, first of all, have never heard, and they are in these religious organizations as blind people that never have an interest in Christ at all. They're all just caught up with the activities and the dainties and delicacies, and yet they're never really happy. They're like birds that are hopping around from one limb to another. They change religions, but they never change gods. Is always still the God of their flesh, their own self-will. And in blindness, that would be our case. But I fear more, according to Scripture, it says there in Hebrews 6, those that have heard and tasted, doesn't mean they've been converted, but they've sat under this gospel message, giving Christ all the glory for a while, that if they turn away, Scriptures say it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. To me, that's a pretty frightening thing. But I've seen that take place. And I say, but for the grace of God, there go I. Because what happens? When they turn, it's already because of a hardening in their heart. And when they go their own way, it's like Esau that sought again that birthright, and yet was impossible. Even though he sought, let's say he sought repentance with tears, he sought it with tears. He sought that birthright. He sought to go back to that place before he had fallen, and it was impossible. No repentance being granted. Well, I'll tell you, there's a bunch of hardened sinners walking around that have come and sat where you're sitting. 
have tuned in and listened to this gospel message for a while, and then God leaving themselves have walked away. And they remain hardened still. They're like floating, roaming dead spirits out there that never does God ever bring them back. What a condemnation. It's like it says that light has come into the world, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's why it says here, eat thou not, verse 6, the bread of him that hath an evil eye. That's talking about light and dark sitting down. What do you have in common with it? If you've been shown the light as it is in Christ, why would you sit down and seek some kind of fellowship or benefit for someone who has an evil eye? He's talking about, even as Christ said, if the light that be in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? Many walking around with a head knowledge of some of these things and yet continue to pursue that path of condemnation left to themselves. When you break bread with somebody in scripture, it means you're in fellowship with them. Here it says, Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty means. This has to do spiritually with not fellowship, not seeking the fellowship of those that are in reality anti-Christ. There's no oneness. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. He says, eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. If you could see the heart of people, it's deceitful. They don't care about Christ. They don't care about salvation. They don't care about eternal life. They just want you to come over and join them. Why can't you just come on and join us this one time? His heart is not with it. He has a heart of evil. He has a heart that is given over to his own self-desires and self-will. If we're the Lord's, this heart has been changed to where we look at that and see that as condemnation. and We're given eyes to look at Christ alone and an appetite for Christ alone, desire for him. It says, the morsel which thou hast eaten, shalt thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. Maybe when it goes into your mouth initially, it seems sweet. You're sitting, you know, like people say, I'm just looking for some fellowship. Well, guess what? You'll end up vomiting that up if you're the Lord's. It's like poison to the heart, to the soul, and lose thy sweet words. Nothing sweet in it. Christ alone. Back and read there in John chapter 6 about how Christ sets himself forth as that bread of life. To eat of him is to eat of his person, is to believe on him. To drink of his blood is to see his blood alone as your salvation. And that's all our meat. That's all we desire for the Lord's. Because we know anything else is condemnation. Well, I trust that the Lord will bless this. This is the reason Daniel and his friends didn't eat the king's food in Babylon. I had a whole portion prepared to speak on there, but you can go over there in Daniel chapter 1. That was one of the very first things that Daniel had to deal with because the king was trying to attract them to his side. This was Babylon. This represented idolatry. It wasn't because Daniel was looking for a specific diet, but he recognized by eating at that king's table, he was identifying with that king and his idolatry. 
therefore he requested that he eat the simple food in his friends. Now, that simple food is Christ. I think it's representative. You can't get any more simple than bread and water, can you? But that's who Christ is as he represents himself to his own. He's the bread of life. He's the water of life. And by God's grace, we'll be content with that. All right.